Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. Welcome to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're looking at a subject that is close to my heart at the moment. Uh, it's recruitment and particularly how coronavirus has driven innovation in recruitment. And this was um, in an article from People Management, I believe, wasn't it, Heather? Yeah. I was talking yeah. about how, although COVID has posed a threat to um, long-term vacancy and employment rates, um, there have been some changes needed to the hiring process. And I've been involved in that. I've been doing some recruitment recently, and it's all very different to how it has been previously. And I wouldn't say it's all bad either. There are some really positive innovations that I think we would probably keep regardless of pandemics. Are you talking specifically about perhaps the interview process or or is, or is, or is it bigger than that? Well, yeah, primarily our biggest change is the interview process. Um, so we, we're doing the initial interviews online um, it's sort of in a Teams meeting and then planning face-to-face meetings, but with obviously all of the social distancing considerations. But we've also we've also reviewed the way that we place our adverts as well and had to think about what sort of things are attracting people to jobs. We've had to think about the way that the job's designed because more people are working remotely now and some of the jobs we've been recruiting for now involve an element of remote working that it wouldn't have done before. So some of the things that we're having to assess when we're recruiting is how well can this person work remotely from their team? And it could be that their team is anywhere in Europe and and they've got to work remotely from their home. So, yeah, it's been quite interesting sort of exercise to look at job design as well as recruitment. I'm involved with an organisation and we're going through a similar process trying to fill a post and initial interviews have been done via Zoom uh, but but I, I, I can't imagine not meeting the people face to face, socially distanced of course, just in order to gauge how they're going to fit with the existing team the team that we've got is quite diverse you know a lot of mixed personalities and it's about finding somebody that will fit and will stay and yeah. and those are the types of things that i think you can only really gauge face to face yeah i think that's an element we weren't quite sure whether to have the face-to-face interviews but ultimately came down uh, on on the same side of, of um, the thinking with that one. Is that, yeah, that maybe it's just because that's what we're used to. Now, mm, other people yeah. might think differently, but whenever I've recruited, it's always been an element of um, face-to-face interaction. So yeah. maybe yeah, quite, uh, with what I know. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I know I know somebody who runs a recruitment, a small recruitment company, and um, a few years ago they were talking very much about um, piloting video uh, CVs, which an employer could view. You know, there would be some set questions that they would be asked to to answer, um, so that you could view the candidate in action without the need to book a hotel uh, you know book a hotel 
schedule a whole day of loads of interviews you could whittle things down much more easily of course zoom and, and teams offer us that um in real time now which you know is is progress of course but i think one of the other things particularly through covid and they talk about this in this article from people management is the 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 sectors where there has been um where people have been furloughed and there is no need the work has kind of dried up and we all know you know what sort of sectors they are but then also they talk specifically about um flights of romanian workers were were, were brought in to fruit pick fruit because even though we'd got people who were on furlough who could who could very legitimately go and earn money elsewhere in a different role of course we go back to that whole some people don't want to pick fruit that you know don't want to do those jobs um there was a guy a ryanair pilot who stopped flying planes um and went and became a tesco delivery driver so that you know there are lots of there were lots of there are no jobs here but there are plenty of jobs here and um need outstripped supply in many ways uh, and i think that's probably quite unique I don't think we've had that big shift in such a short period of time before in, in recruitment. I think it also has the knock-on effect of what you do when you actually take them on. So th there's a lot of companies now that are doing remote onboarding as well. So it's something to consider, you know, do you do your um, inductions remotely? Is there some sort of training that you can do before they come on board? I suppose in some places, all the staff might still be working remotely anyway. So that's a whole different consideration, isn't it? But in the companies that I work, we're still working in the offices mostly. But, um, you know, this recruitment process is the thing that's sticking. But, yes, yeah, so some offices are still working totally from home, aren't they? Yeah. And my husband, um, again, he he's working from home, has been um throughout uh, and he works with people he's never met and i think that's going to be quite common across a lot of organizations it, it just because it's not been possible for people to be in the same space yeah it does make managing your team quite different doesn't it so we've talked about managing your remote teams but extending it further to managing remote teams that haven't met now that's another proposition altogether isn't it yeah yeah totally and and the you don't have you don't have the knowledge of those existing dynamics because you've never witnessed people together to know that you know john winds sue up massively or you know they just clash or whatever so i think that's um that's a problem in itself but then also did you see there was an article in hr technologist i don't know if you saw that trends that will shape recruitment in 2020 and this this is looking at artificial intelligence which we've talked about on the show in the past um to assess people so looking at um uh reading their their um artificial intelligence reading their language and seeing how they how they come across looking at predicting the way that people might behave within an organization based on their, their CVs, their, their results, etc. Um, and then thinking about 
how the how the schedules might work in terms of remote working and what the policies are um, what benefits people are looking for because of course now if you're working from home uh, you you might you might want a different setup because perhaps traveling to work isn't the thing or free you know hot meals in the canteen is not the thing because you're working at home so lots of other little things that have changed and are being tweaked uh, as we go through as as we go through 2020 that's fascinating isn't it so all of that is being done by ai a lot of it is yeah yeah looking at so rather than people sitting and and trawling loads of applications because volume applications it's a blooming nightmare as we all know uh it's looking at um how to attract the right people but then how to how to whittle that down in a fairly labor a less labour intensive way. Well, I found a good way to do that. And there is a local North Wales company that did that service for me, actually, on my latest um, round of recruitment. And I found it um, very useful, actually. So 70 odd applications came in and they got me a short list of six. It's something I could do myself, but it saved yeah. me an awful lot of time. And although I could have gone back and reviewed some of the 70 that they didn't send through, why why should I? They they came up with a list of six very strong candidates for me to pick from. So you can have AI or you can have uh, outsource it to another company or you can do it all yourself. In other news this week, uh, an article caught my eye, uh, which unless you are a subscriber to the FT, it can be a bit of a nightmare to read the full article. But I have managed um, by not going to the FT, uh, for for a little while to be able to see the full article, they have um, assessed 850 companies, and they've looked at their staff, and they've uh, assessed them based on their inclusivity, so diversity of gender, age, ethnicity, disability, and sexual orientation in the workplace, and the results are are really interesting. Um, because this really is on the agenda now and it's something that in the past we've probably paid lip service to but not actually um, scrutinised businesses to see what the employees think. Very often companies will say, oh, yes, you know, we have, you know, we have a certain proportion of females at, um, you know, at senior levels and, you know, uh, uh, you know disability people you know with a disability make up this percentage of our workforce anyway these 850 companies um had to um they were um surveyed the staff were surveyed and the list covers um Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, France, blah, 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 lots of European countries and the UK. So I thought I'd take a minute. I thought, well, I'll scan the list and see if I've heard of any of these companies. Um, number one is a French company that I've not heard of, but they're called BioCoop. And they are, um, as you might imagine, um, an organization that that it's a food cooperative, effectively. So that's number um, one from all of the 150 they surveyed. 850 yeah yeah okay so so in the in the in the top 10 we don't feature but um a, a, a number 11 a company called pinson masons which is um, an accounting consultancy oh, yeah. comes in 
Okay, then fantastically, a company whose um, uh, founder we have reviewed uh, and, and profiled on on the show, number fifteen, Timpsons, oh, the okay, High Street key cutters. Yeah. Yes. We know, you know, we've talked about the types of employees that they have. They have uh, ex-offenders. They help people back into work. Um, then we go down a little bit further and we've got um, Diageo at 22, uh, which I thought was quite surprising because I, 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 rightly or wrongly, I think of Diageo as being quite an old sort of dyed in the wool corporate organization yeah, but obviously big organization big old organization don't you yeah yeah so um ao world um which is retail i think do they do Domestic electrical goods or? yeah things like that yeah um and then what else have we got then we go down we, we, we feature at number 50 we've got rolls royce motor cars and at number 51 we've got pets at home oh. um and there you go. We've talked about the, the founder of that. So um, Wagamama, NatWest, uh, companies, Pret-a-Manger, Warburton's. Uh, we've, we've, we've got really good representation That's in the list. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, our lowest um, is BMI Construction, who come in at 846 out of 850. But they make the cut. So... Um, yeah it's a really interesting list um it also you go you learn a lot because you go well what is that company and then you google them and find out a little bit more <laughs> so that's that's the thing um that's caught my eye i'll make sure that there's a link to the article on our website which is the business.community what news have you got tracy so i went to the ons and there was a report out last week on business births and deaths so Ooh. between 2018 and 2019, the number of UK business births has increased. So from 370,000 to 390,000, which is a birth rate of 13% in 2019 compared to 12.7% in 2018. It'd be interesting oh. to see what what impact 20, this weird world of 2020 has on these yeah. numbers. So the number of UK business deaths also increased, though. So it increased from 311,000 in 2018 to 336,000 in 2019. And interestingly enough, London had both the highest birth rate and the highest death rate. Um, transport and storage industry had the highest business birth rate. And business administration and support services had the highest business debt rate. And in 2019, there were 13,000 high growth businesses in the UK. And that's measured by employment. Now, so 13,000 compared with 14,000 in 2018. And in the report, there's a lot more detail. So I've just pulled out the, the main figures. But there's a lovely table which talks about the active number of um, businesses in each sector, the birth and the death rate. So it goes through each of the sectors from production, construction, motor trade, wholesale, retail, transport and storage, which we just mentioned, accommodation, food services, information and communication, et cetera, et cetera. So whichever sector you're in, it would be quite interesting if you refer to this 
report to just see what what's happening you know how many other businesses are springing up how many businesses are dying and that, there's no detail as to how they're dying you know they're just naturally fading away in retirement or uh, you know as they become insolvent but it would be interesting if you look in your own sector to see what the situation is so along with everything else we talk about we can put a link for this on our website the business.community but while i'm here i want to ask you something heather oh go on Talking about um, growth businesses, have you heard of a business called On Buy? On Buy? Yeah. Mm, don't think so. Apparently, no. it's been around since 2016. I feel like I should know about it because. How it, are we spelling it? How is it spelt? O N B U Y, On Buy. Oh, On Buy, okay. Still no. <laughs> It's described in this article by Tom Horton, the Northwest Business Editor on Business Live. Um, this article came out this week just to say that the British ethical alternative to Amazon, that's what they're described as, is investing £10 million in a Manchester office and creating over 100 jobs. So I really feel like I should have known about this business. Mm. It's worth in the region of 115 million pounds. And its aim is to revolutionize the e-commerce sector by going up against Amazon. And they say providing a fair, transparent and ethical marketplace, benefiting buyers and sellers. So the guy is from Trafford himself, Cass Patton or Cas Patton, um, and he's says that Manchester's the place to be, essentially, and that's why he's setting up a, an office there. He's in the process of a worldwide scale-up and is poised for another year of immense growth in 2021. So I think that's one to watch. Having not been aware of it before, I do feel like we need to track the progress of the British ethical alternative to Amazon, don't you, Heather? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm interested to know how the business has grown to that size without us knowing about it. Because yeah, I loads of stuff online. Why am I not heard about this? I need to find out now. Um, he also said this is interesting. Um, he, the, um, the um, founder of this business says he sees Manchester as UK's second city in terms of size, but number one in terms of opportunity. That could have been written by the um, the economic development department of Manchester Council, <laughs> couldn't it? Absolutely. Can I share one small story that might be of interest to the retailers amongst um, amongst our listeners? Uh, it's an article that I, I just happened upon on the BBC. Uh, and we've talked in the past about how local branches of banks have been closing, you know, for years and years and years. And small communities are really struggling to find ways to get their hands on cash. Although at the moment, cash is kind of a dirty word and yeah. people want things you know, to be contactless at every possibility. Uh, however, some people still want cash. Uh, and there's a, a, a big trend now that they're trying in areas where, um, so small towns where there is very little access to funding. You don't even have a, um, a mobile bank anymore where people can walk into a shop 
and without making a purchase, withdraw cash, you know, have cash back. So once upon a time, you know, you might pick up a couple of pints of milk, pay and say, can I have 20 pound cash back? You now actually can walk in and draw out cash and the retailer gets a small fee per withdrawal. So they get paid for, for giving the people the money. And of course, they have to process less cash going into the bank. So they get charged less uh, when they're doing their banking. So um, there are a few stories that, you know, maybe churches or uh, shops or other uh, community buildings might adopt this sort of um, regime. And I just thought it was um, it, it, it was really interesting that it's something that's being trialed um, and it's challenging, you know, the link um, network. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the link ATM network. So one to watch, well, another one to watch, I guess. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And this week, both me and Heather are holding a physical book in our little mitts, aren't we, Heather? We are indeed. Yeah, proper pages and everything. And I've got to say, I do like the cover of the book because there's a picture of some sheep. But there's one sheep with a pink fleece. And I'm guessing the pink fleece is the one that's breaking the rules because the book is called Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life. And it's by a lady called Francesca Gino, and she's the professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Now, I suggested this book. I bought it straight away. I really like the look of it. I have to admit that I have tried and tried and tried to get into it, whether it's because my state of mind at the moment, whether I've been doing other things, but I just keep going over the same paragraph over and over again. I liked what I read, but I just somehow couldn't penetrate the rest of the book. So what I've decided with it is I like the premise of it. I like what I've read about it. I'm going to have to give it another chance at another time because for now I couldn't get beyond the first chapter and I don't want that to be a reflection of the book, more maybe the reflection of my lack of staying power this particular week. What about you, Heather? (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, you, I do recall that you sent me a message saying I'm really struggling with the book. So, of course, I arrive at the same book thinking, oh, well, if Tracy's struggling, you know, it's going to be a nightmare for me because <laughs> we are very different in our approach to books. However, I, so I started having a look at it and I was trying to see, you know, if there's any way that I could fast track my reading of it. I have to admit that um, it's very wordy. <laughs> that there aren't any diagrams, there aren't any graphs, there aren't any charts, there aren't any infographics. I tell you what is good, though. There's a quote at the beginning of every chapter. I love that. Yeah. I always and we love, love yes, we yeah. love that. So, so it scores points for that. So I was struggling a little bit. And so I thought, right, how am I going to, what am I going to do about this? So I actually Googled the author and I watched, it wasn't a TED talk. It was a talk that she was giving at a, um, a university in uh, America, uh, and where she basically talks about what she talks about in the book. Uh, so she talks about people who are disruptors, effectively, that's the word that's often used now, and what they bring to the party when it comes to business. And so what I've realised now, as I've scanned back through the book, is actually each each chapter is effectively a little 
not not a little story because there's there's a context running all the way through it but she split each of the different characteristics that somebody who is a rebel might display um, and so just to go over the um, so she talks at one point about um, a hot dogs uh, restaurant and they have a talent for novelty uh, she talked the, the vanishing elephant where she talks about curiosity curiosity the Hudson River is a runway and that's talking about the pilot who um, so, brought down the the, the, the plane yeah yeah um, uncomfortable truths uh, a talent for diversity and the one one that is really really powerful is one about a coach a talent for authenticity and, and what she says is that these people um, are happy to feel uncomfortable are happy to leap in to help um, have optimism and play to their strengths and are authentic and the story about the coach um, there's a young lady who is going to sing to this full stadium the American national anthem and she's she's won the equivalent of X Factor but like small time X Factor and she stands up and she you know she walks into the interposition and she starts singing and she forgets the words and of course it's quite embarrassing and she's very embarrassed and this coach immediately walks over stands by her puts its hand on her shoulder and starts singing with her and gives gives her the confidence to continue prompts her when she's wobbling and you know the the moral of the story is that is he a good singer no he isn't was he putting himself in in the firing line by standing there and risking looking like you know somebody who sings really badly yes probably but he was willing to jump in to help somebody out uh, and it's a lovely lovely story so there are various stories along those lines and she also talks about some of the ex some exercises that she's done with different organizations um, as part of her work so I feel much more positive about the book now and I am going to go back and I am going to read each chapter but treat it as a, a, a standalone story effectively because I don't think it's a book that takes you on it doesn't it wouldn't take me on a journey fast enough to keep me engaged that's a good tip isn't it so if I if I just aim to read a chapter dip in and read a chapter and then dip in and read another chapter and presumably don't necessarily have to read those chapters in order I, I, I don't know but I am I don't get the sense that you do you just need to know that she's a, a very proud Italian she knows her stuff she's fascinated by people and she will do whatever she can to um, to point out to us uh, the way that these people behave and why it's good for business yeah well like i say the, the good quotes and i'm just picking out the first one from chapter one um it says it's not rebels that make trouble but trouble that makes rebels a quote from ruth messenger and really? uh, there's I, I have flicked through the book and looked at all of the quotes um and i liked the one on authenticity as well so that whether coach um sings the national anthem in that chapter it starts with the quote from the scarlet letter actually no one man can, for any considerable time, wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which is the true one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Very true. Yeah. Isn't it? 
yeah and and all of it is about truth it, yeah absolutely and and she she does work with organizations she talks she gives an example of um there's a company uh, intuit and they have innovation awards within their organization but they also have failure awards because okay. she tells a story about a lady who joined a company called Ariel and she was told on day one when she joined in a ju junior role and is, is now hugely successful within that organization that she's going to meet people who have big, big paychecks, big ideas, you know, been around the block a few times. Your job, you have permission to speak up because you will have ideas just because you don't shout as loudly or don't get paid as much. So it's, it's those types of things, what you can do within a business that doesn't necessarily cost money, but it brings out the best in people. And that's where you get these great ideas. So, yeah, go back to it. We're going back to it. Francesca Gino, she's a, an award-winning researcher. She's won all sorts of honours from top 40 business professors, professors under 40. Uh, she's in the Thinkers 50. So... Yeah, I'm going to give it another go. I'm going to try it in bite-sized chunks, chapter by chapter, and uh, I, I shall report back at some point to let you know how I got on. But that book is called Rebel Talent, and it's by Francesca Gino. This week on The Business Community, we're profiling a lady who we've already mentioned in passing on the show when we were talking about the founder of Monzo Bank, Tom Blomfield. Have I got that right, Heather? Tom Blomfield. To little That's correct. Yeah. About him. Um, yeah. Anne Bowden. Now, she's the founder and CEO of Starling Bank. It's a mobile banking app, which, according to Forbes, is used by 275,000 British customers. Now, Anne is Welsh and she's previously held a string of top financial positions, including. Um, at RBS and at Allied Irish Bank. And she raised more than $70 million to start up this bank. So she's obviously got a thing or two about her and is clearly trusted in this sector. Um, I'm not sure I could raise $70 million for a startup. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a go, you know. Um, and she's recently received an MBE for services to fintech. She is on Forbes' list of Europe's top 50 women in tech. She lives in London and she's age 60, according to Forbes. Heather, what did you... Oh, sorry, this one little bit. She's the first woman to found a UK bank. There we go. There we go. And having watched a few um, video interviews with her, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised. She she clearly knows her stuff. Um, she's uh, she's not your typical, um, you know, suited and booted banking executive. You know, she's got a bit of something about her um, and she she's clearly very tenacious. She didn't she didn't set out to to work in in fintech. She was going to work in IT, but she applied for a job as a graduate trainee at Lloyds Bank and basically, as, as you say, worked her way through lots of the big banking companies. Um, and she did her first degree in computer science and chemistry. And then went yeah, to do an MBA. Yes, which, which is a bit of an odd um, 
an odd combination, I would say. But uh, but there we go. She she founded her on online banking business in June 2014, and she called it Possible Financial Services, which I think is a bit of a rubbish name personally. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it had the tag tagline bank possible and she wanted to create an entirely online bank um and during that time um she employed tom blomfield uh, and a number of uh, other directors and when he left to set up monzo the other four directors left with him and she talks in one of the interviews that i watched about you know i lost I lost a tea, you know, I basically lost everything um, and, and, you know, had to um, start from the from the get go effectively. Now, what's really interesting is that there is mention of a funder. Did you come across this, Tracy? No, go on. A, 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 um, a gentleman called Mr. McPike, Mr. who McPike. has funded McPike. Name. Yeah, he's um, he has invested seventy five million pounds for a sixty percent stake in the company, uh, and he he's a bit of an enigma, and he might be somebody that it's worth us uh, investigating because he apparently is um, bankrolling uh, this startup uh, and invests in a lot of financial companies, but he's a bit under the radar. So uh, he sounds he sounds quite interesting. Oh, yeah. So I think we perhaps need to um, we need to check him out. But uh, she appears in uh, FinTech magazine as one of the top 10 women in FinTech. So obviously, uh, you know, along that thread that, that you were saying um, that she, she she is she's a mover and a shaker. Now, the reason she came to our attention was she's got a, a book out, hasn't she? And um, Dame Stephanie Shirley actually tweeted to say that she'd just received her copy. Uh, the book's called Banking on it. I've not read it yet. Have you, have you got it, Heather? No, I haven't. No, no. no. I probably won't get it either. <laughs> she sounds really interesting though so, which is why we've, we've actually got a lot of material to go on at the moment because there are an awful lot of recent articles about her because she's promoting her book I picked up on one um, in the Observer from the beginning of November <laughs> I, I think this sort of sums up um, how I imagine her is um, Anna Moore the, uh, the author of the um, the journalist who wrote this article said that the first time she met her was at a glitzy awards ceremony and Anne Bowden was skulking in the loos. She's <laughs> um, <laughs> smaller than me at five foot one and older than me at 60. And she's a little eccentric and perhaps the friendliest person in the place. And she didn't stop talking. So they started to talk and it sounds like she got a really good story out of that. So I think the lesson for you there is as a journalist, talk to the people in the loos because there's some really good articles to be written from who you meet in the loo. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should start a podcast, people we talk to in the loos. Yeah, I'm up for that because I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> It could, it could have drastic consequences, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, she, um, I could imagine, you know, she she comes across very well. 
as I said before, she clearly knows her stuff, but she's approachable and she is thinking, she's either very good at um, appearing genuine and authentic, um, maybe she's read um, Rebel Talent, I don't know, but she certainly seemed to be wanting to do the best for the, for the customer as well as for the staff so she's got that sort of joined up approach so i hope that continues i think as well what what's really encouraging them um, is a quote from this article and it's encouraging for for people like us heather ladies of a certain age um, she says in here that she's aware that she doesn't conform to any banking stereotype she says, I'm a woman, I'm five foot, I'm Welsh, I'm middle-aged, I'm from a very ordinary background, and I'm the sort of person who chat to somebody in the ladies. <laughs> and she says, fintech startups are all about young white guys with goatees, usually with rich parents. People thought I was crazy. No one starts a bank, especially people who look like me. But I love this bit. She said, I'd reached the stage where I was prepared to fail. I was 54 and confident enough not to care if somebody said I was stupid. So there you go, ladies. <laughs> Van Boden can start a bank with that attitude. What's stopping you doing whatever you want to do? Once you've got past that stage of not caring what people say or what people think, just get on with it. Well, that's about all we've got time for this week. Uh, do join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.